yes. Um, so some of the things I've recently been doing have been focusing in helping the uh, the architectural industry and their clients make decisions um, better and sooner. Uh, and usually uh, visualization is a, a, a big help in that. Uh, um, a, a lot of times the owners and stakeholders have a difficult time uh, uh, reading blueprints, uh, construction drawings, and that's where renderings uh, really come in helpful. How accurate is the experience? I've, you know, I've looked at some things where uh, they've done with some augmented reality and they go out to the site actually, and uh, then it it uh, it builds the image to scale so that they can kind of visually see what things look like. Yeah, so those ones I've not worked with the augmented reality, but I do know what you're speaking of because I've uh, tested that out in um, in like conferences and trade shows, and it is really impressive how it geolocates with some sort of a a marker that then brings in uh, the BIM model, BIM being uh, building information modeling. Uh, um, typically one of the big tools right now being used for that is Revit by Autodesk, uh, but there's several others. Uh, but there's some really cool tools where you can uh, basically attach a hollow, uh, hollow lens to a hard hat and go out to the site, as you say. And uh, from what I understand, it's, it's sufficiently accurate to allow um, for like construction progress review, even down into like major mechanical rooms inside of a, a building where they need to maybe plan rerunning uh, piping and other me mechanical things. They can plan much better when they can kind of see that augmented version right in front of them in the existing situation, in, in the example of an existing building, which was, which is where I think augmented reality AR shines compared to VR where time, which is on the design side of things that don't yet exist and yet getting the sense of scale and immersion necessary to help people make decisions about, you know, it, does this design work best? Do we like the way it looks? Do we like the way it feels to go from this part to the other? So it's uh, more aesthetic because like when I, when I look at blueprints uh, for the engineering for, uh, like a construction site, there's a lot of lines, you know, it's flat 2D. Uh, and, you know, they're looking at uh, spacing and, uh, you know, everything's done by measurements, little codes where electrical's going and things like that. Uh, can you talk about some of your processes, how you actually get it into VR so everything is there, all your details are there? Yeah, so in the last probably... I want to say in the last 10 years, maybe a little bit more recent than that, but in the last 10 years, the architecture, engineering, and construction industries have moved over to a vast majority of their work being done in these building information modeling software packages, like I mentioned a minute ago, like Revit. And the idea behind that is literally modeling the information that relates to the building, all of the details, all the way down to representing that graphically in 3D. So um, today, when you look at blueprints, they're being generated um, in a fairly automated process from the 3D uh, uh, objects and models, as well as the information that's modeled into the building. For example, there may be 20 different types of doors in a, in a large 
uh, building, but those 20 different types of doors may be repeated in use um, a dozen times or so each. And so they, they only need to represent that door with, as you say, a symbol, an icon. Okay, there's a door type A, and then it's used 20 times. Well, all of the information about that door, its fire rating, its height, its width, the frame, the the way that door uh, has to be adjusted, its installation based on how thick of a and what type of a wall it's being installed or installed into. That's all the information that sits behind the scenes. Uh, um, so there's tools for extracting all of that, not only 3D model and geometry data and all the texture and, and lighting information, but as well all of the information that goes with all of those objects, like the doors or windows or the mechanical equipment um, to pull that into three, uh, a, a, for lack of a better term, a game engine like Unreal Engine or Unity, and it retains all that metadata in the background where you can actually display that in the VR or AR environment if that's what you want to do. And so that's what my process is, usually to get the Revit model, as cases usually are from the, uh, from the architect or construction company, and then take that in and do a little bit of preparation uh, for how it intends to be used in VR. And then I take that into Unreal Engine and I, uh, I tweak the textures, I tweak the lighting so things look and feel just right. Because once you put a headset on, the, the eye and the brain are very, very uh, keen on details. They're much more difficult to trick than a static rendering or an animation on a TV. Uh, um, and then from there, we can do some basic programming to add interactivity, like the ability to move objects around on a wall. Uh, um, to say, you know, we don't like where this door is. It really should be over here. And that's something that allows the stakeholders or the owners to kind of participate in that design process. Yeah, I, I was noticing on some of the animations that I, I went and saw that it was showing like uh, uh, textures like brick siding changing and the paint colors. Mm -hmm. uh, then you could actually walk in a VR and you could look. Um, there was a different building. It looked like a school, possibly a university, where you walked into the interior and you got kind of a spatial feel for things like how the how the lighting worked and things like that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, lighting and the effect on that in VR? Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, lighting is a very uh, fundamental kind of uh, theory or element in architecture. Uh, um, be, because, you know, with our floors and walls and ceilings, those kind of define, those are kind of like the, the, the essential physical boundaries in, in architecture. Uh, um but how those floors, walls, ceilings, ceilings feel as that spatial experience that you aptly mentioned, uh, lighting plays one of the biggest roles in that. Uh, um, a darker space is going to clearly have a different feel than a space that's well lit. And a space that's, that's overly lit is going to have a different feel, even down to the materials and how reflective or not reflective they are. For example, brick, the, the sense of, does it feel like somebody just pasted a picture of brick on this wall? Or is there technology going on behind the scenes that makes it so it really feels like that brick has little divots in it and it has the grout. And brick, if you look at it at a glancing angle, actually has a little bit of 
glossiness to it where when you look at it head on usually is a much more matte appearance and those things our eyes pick up on really fast and our brains pick up on really fast once you get into an immersive environment where you've got like stereoscopic view like a vr headset you know you you said that uh, something that was interesting is that you actually have to have more detail because the brain picks up on so much detail in vr um, how do you deal with like Virgo? Because like I know some people when they get in VR, it makes them feel kind of dizzy. So this is really really interesting. Uh, about five years ago, when the uh, the contemporary like the the main VR headsets that are available off the shelf today, the Oculus and the Vive, those were both kind of in conceptual early kind of we'll call it beta stages back about four years ago. And um, neither one of them had anywhere near the resolution they have today. And neither one of them had the, uh, the refresh rate that they do today. And this was one of the rare cases where simply throwing money at a problem actually solved it. Now, it wasn't just simply throwing money, obviously, but they had to increase the frame rate or the refresh rate of those displays on the, uh, in the VR headsets, as well as increase the resolution. And they found that when they did that, I don't remember what the statistics are, I haven't looked at them for a long time, that they achieved an almost zero um, uh, kind of vertigo sickness. Wow. The software itself was also running. So there was a hardware had to be capable of running at what they found is 90 hertz. Um, some companies go a little bit lower and go closer to, I think it's 80 or 75 Hertz. Uh, um, but if the software experience is too intense and like the computer can't push it or the phone can't push it, then it doesn't matter what the, the display is capable of if what you're pushing is too intense and then the frame rate drops. So if the frame rate is below, in my experience, if it's below 60 frames per second in a VR headset, uh, um, a noticeable percentage of people are going to feel a little bit queasy. Uh, um, but I've not, in, in all of my experience over the last several years, I have not yet found any correlation to age, gender, uh, background, familiarity with like playing video games or things like that. I have not found any correlation. I've found um, folks in the, that appear to me like they're, uh, in their mid to late 70s to put on a VR headset and use it like it was the most natural thing in the world. And I've had people uh, younger than myself who grew up in my generation playing video games where no matter what I do, they still get, uh, they still get a little bit sick, even if I make sure it's a really smooth frame rate. And I think it has something to do with the subjective nature of how well or how likely somebody's brain is to accept the lie that's being presented to them, if that makes sense. Like some people, their brain just sees right through it and doesn't accept it. And uh, other folks, they, they know it's not real, but that doesn't bother them. I have not been able to find a correlation uh, beyond that. Okay, thanks. Uh, you know, one of the things that you mentioned uh, early on is that you're saying that uh, that they they get kind of a presentation of the, the space and they get the materials, the lighting, um, and they can do what ifs. Uh, is there a return on investment? Uh, in other words, they're going to spend so much money to have the VR rendering. 
what what is the business angle that's driving the business model here? That's a really good question. Um, I personally have not been privy to the dollars and cents associated with that question. So I can't speak to it that perspective, but I can speak to it in uh, relative terms that I think will still answer the question or at least enough for somebody else to kind of dive into the dollars and cents. Uh, um, on one of the particular uh, examples that, that you're referring to that you and I kind of discussed was um, the the architect had been working with the owner for several weeks. I don't know how many weeks. It could have been several months. Trying to uh, uh, settle on one particular design element in this building that was being built. And there, there wasn't enough information coming out of the construction documents, you know, the, the drawings for the plans and the elevations of this area. And the owner just wasn't feeling like they felt like like they had an idea of what it would feel like to be in that space. Their feeling, their gut feeling was, well, it's going to be dark and it's going to feel kind of not violent, but it's going to feel kind of uh, kind of intense. That maybe wasn't what the owner was looking for. Uh, um, and at, at that point, long story short, they came to our group and asked us, can we put this in VR and see this in person? Will that help us out? And we're like, sure, we can do that. I don't remember how much time was spent on, on that, going back and forth with the architect. It might have been about a week uh, um, at the time. It could have been a little bit more than a week. Uh, um, using the, that exact same example from a year and a half ago, if I were to do it today, instead of being a week, would have been a day, possibly even less than a day. Uh, just because the hardware and software and plugins have advanced so much with a focus on this kind of use for the architectural industry, it's super impressive. But even in that particular example from a year and a half ago, they were able to make a decision in minutes that they had not been able to make in weeks before that, going back and forth with the designers. You know, that's a, that's a great benefit because some of these buildings are... You know, you're talking millions of dollars, and so uh, it'd be very difficult. Let's say if you started construction about 20% into the the building, you know, the owner decides that they want to, you know, tear down a wall or or move something around. Uh, it delays the deliverable, and it also increases the cost. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, that feeds into another example. If you don't mind my uh, uh, sure kind of taking another stab at that. There's another example that this one had been, somebody had written an article about this uh, several years ago. And I didn't come across the article until after we had basically done the same thing. And at the time, uh, my boss was in a meeting regarding a, the, the construction for uh, a hospital. And they, they were talking about this common practice of physically building mock-ups of patient rooms, treatment rooms, and operating rooms. Now, they obviously don't go into the full detail, but they get the walls in the right places. They get representations of their equipment in the right places and uh, light switches and, and electrical outlets and oxygen uh, wall outlets and nitrogen and all these things. And they, they commonly do this for hospitals. The construction company does. And then they bring in the doctors and nurses and say, okay, are, is anything in the wrong place? Would you like to change anything? Because now it's the time to do it. Because once they start running all of that piping and conduit 
for all of those different gas and electrical and specialized electrical and data, it, it's too late to make changes. And so it's a common practice to actually do these mock-ups. Well, these mock-ups, from what I heard, I don't have, I don't have quotes on this, but from what I understand, those can take months and cost tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to set those up. But they save even more just by doing it. Well, my boss at the time said, why aren't we doing this in VR? The, the, we, we can probably do it quicker and cost less and get more meaningful information out of it. And we don't have to go like run out some uh, uh, like off um, warehouse space in order to build these. And so they decided to do that on this particular project. And um, again, I don't know what the dollars and cents are at the time, what was actually saved, but they had us do it again. But this time they said, can we make it so we can actually move things around instead of just having the doctors and nurses tell us that can't be there, it needs to move. And so that's where in Unreal Engine, I used the, uh, the, the visual node-based scripting language built inside of Unreal. It's called Blueprint to make it so that certain objects could physically be moved, or I should say virtually moved in the VR environment. So this light switch, they could move around on this wall. They couldn't put it on a different wall, but they could move it around on the original wall it was on. And then we could store that information as to how far it was moved and in what direction. And then we could feed that information back to the architect so that they could adjust the design um, from that information, that kind of bi-directional um, information session that the doctors and nurses had. Wow, that's really valuable, you know, uh, because you're, you're, you're doing something near real time and uh, you're getting, uh, using the power of the network. Uh, does this require them to come into the office to put on the headset and stuff, or, or can they just uh, do this over a network? So that's a really good question. I think that we're still at, in what I would describe as the early kind of the early nascent life of, of this particular kind of technology. In this particular case, um, they set up the VR headset and its sensors in the construction trailer on site. So the building was already under construction for its like uh, foundation and its steel like skeleton was already uh, started. Um, and so there was construction trailer on site and they brought them to that construction trailer and that's where they experienced the, the, the VR with the headset and stuff. Um, we at, on other examples, we they came to our office and did that. We had a room that was dedicated and pre-set up for the VR. Um, the other way that we've done it, which didn't work out quite as well, and that's why I say this is kind of nascent, is we took the VR equipment to their office and we set it up in their office. Uh, um, and there was there was a little bit more challenge with that because the computer equipment, it's not your typical desktop computer that needs to run a full VR model with high-end visuals, high-end lighting, and maintain those levels of, of fluidity, of smoothness in the experience, uh, um, which makes them not particularly portable, or at least not friendly to being uh, toted around. And that those things are obviously changing at the rate that computation technology changes. So within the next year or two, 
I'm sure that it'll be much easier to take a computer that's really capable of pushing out the kind of visuals that need to for VR to for that to be a smaller, more portable computer. On the yeah. flip side, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I was going to say on the flip side, just in the last, I want to say, month or two, and probably upcoming in the next several months, are um, what they call uh, outside or inside out tracking VR headsets that work much more similar to the one, the augmented reality that you mentioned at the beginning with um, uh, by using cameras and um, I want to say some level of artificial intelligence uh, like programmed into like some algorithmic approach to tracking with four or five cameras. They usually have two cameras on the front and one on each side. And I don't know if they have other types of sensors on them, but basically they don't need external infrared or external laser sensors to detect where the headset is. And the, the, the original Oculus and the Vive were like that. You have to have two sensors at least for good tracking and then you're confined to that space well the new oculus quest and i can't remember which one of the vive devices it is along with quite a few other lesser known vr headsets can track you not just your your gaze like which direction you're looking but you can actually walk around out in open space and the cameras are constantly sampling in your environment and determining how far you've moved and in what direction um my experience with those headsets are the tracking isn't quite there to be used in a, an architectural environment, but they are really impressive. So like you give it another year or two and things are going to be, it's, we, we would have a completely different conversation. Yeah. And I, and it's going to be soon, you know, when Apple's going to put out its augmented reality glasses, mm-hmm. you know, and when that comes out uh, now you've got, You've got a high-powered device, and you've got the VR experience, but you've got it, uh, you know, uh, mobile. So you're really taking advantage of the power of the network and the power of handheld devices, which are increasing according to Moore's Law. Actually, they seem like they're increasing faster. You know, they've got machine learning chips on it, AI chips now, uh, Mm -hmm. graphic you know, it's interesting. I did some research, and they had a, a GPU. Uh, let's see, it was 2015. Japan had a machine that cost 350 million dollars. <laughs> was that was the highest computational machine in the world at the time? Uh-huh. And then uh, Nvidia just recently uh, broke that with a 5,000 dollar machine that could do exactly the same thing. So yeah. You know, if you look like, like you said, like two, three years into advance, uh, you know, those should be within range to acquire as a consumer. So now you've got this high powered machine and you're going to want to have that mobile capability to do those visualizations. Oh, Is yeah. that what you kind of see? or? Oh, yeah, Ab- absolutely. Like, I think that, like, I will always kind of have an affinity to like a fully occluding VR like headset, but I don't at all discount the uh, major value and benefit of uh, more augmented reality or your superimposing virtual things over the experience of the real environment. Um, some of the major challenges they have with AR right now is, um, is contrast and opacity. Like they've got some really, really impressive 
uh, hardware and software technology that can take an object and put it in front of my hand and, in, and occlude my hand uh, through this thing. And that I can put my hand in front of, uh, like between my eyes and a digital object and occlude that object. Like a few years ago, like a, maybe even a year and a half ago, the demos they were showing on that were really pretty poor. They were really progressive, but they just weren't good enough. And now yeah. in the last, I would say last several months, a couple of products that I've seen coming out specifically for AR are way better. But they still have a challenge with being really, really good at representing high contrast environments where you can have strong shadows and strong highlights and strong details. But just like VR four years ago, it was suffering from very similar problems and look at where it is today. Like nothing is going to take any steps backwards. You're all just going to take leaps and bounds, right? I think both AR and VR and, and this kind of abstract idea of MR, it's all getting mixed into this thing that everybody's calling XR now. Uh, um, I, I think that they're, I think that they're each going to find their foothold and, uh, and focus in those footholds. Like none of them are going away and there's going to be a, a lot of overlap between them, but they're all going to have their strengths, I think. And like, like you mentioned, on-site evaluation for the progress of a construction uh, project, AR is going to be spectacular for that. Uh, yeah. Existing um, uh, fabrication facility that's trying to evaluate how they might change the layout of their machine to be more efficient, to handle different kinds of projects, AR is going to be spectacular for something like that. Um, interior architectural environments that haven't yet been built, that they're, they're trying to be able to change out the textures and change lighting fixtures and stuff. I think VR is going to continue to be a really strong uh, tool there. Well, it seems like, uh, you know, uh, deep fakes, for example, that, that's been popular on the Internet where now they're using machine learning to uh, take an image and kind of morph it onto another person. Uh, another one I saw was yeah. uh, using AI to enhance uh, video. So it seems like if they could go to the next level, which is uh, light and contrast, then they could solve the problem that you're bringing up with AI, uh, VR is that, you know, your eye is expecting to see this high quality texturing. And uh, if it doesn't look like high quality texturing, you say, oh, that looks kind of uh, like a toy. So it kind of mm -hmm. kills the deal, right? Yeah. But if, if they could use some uh, AI and they could figure out, okay, this is the type of day that we want to simulate. And here's the lighting. And it could do something like real-time ray tracing. Then you could, you could get uh, very good contrast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was just going to – I was trying to find a, a way to touch on real-time ray tracing. Um, about how, how long ago, it was 2007, I went to SIGGRAPH. So that tells you that was, you know, a few years ago, right? 12 years ago, there was a company demonstrating what they called real-time ray tracing. And, like, it was a car, and there was actual ray traced shadows, ray traced uh, reflections on this car, and they wow. had this server rack right next to it. And I said, how many computers are in there? And they said, we can't tell you. So I started looking at it. It looked like there were 10, 10 computers in there. And I said, how much does it cost to get one of your systems to do this? And I can't remember the number. It was like $500,000 or, or a million. Like, I can't remember. I was just flabbergasted. It was impressive. But then you look at today where one NVIDIA RTX GPU, like the Titan RTX, 
with enough memory on it to really handle a conflict lighting scenario. It's just incredible. Now, it's still not what I would describe as real time. Like the frame rate is low enough that it becomes really fast rendering and not real time yet. Like, for example, in Unreal Engine with a Titan RTX NVIDIA graphics card, I have no doubt that with the next iteration or even the one after that, they're going to be pushing frame rates at those level of quality that are that then do become real time, that then are in the, the 60 to 90 uh, uh, frames per second. I, I follow a guy on LinkedIn. I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, so I can't, I can't give him a shout out here. But he's been experimenting with Unreal Engine and uh, one of the NVIDIA RTX cards for the last, I want to say, month or two. And to watch his progress as he's been doing this for architectural interior uh, like rendering blows my mind. They're the kind of things that would normally take five, ten minutes, hour, two, three, four hours to render with traditional renderers he's outputting in a matter of minutes from Unreal Engine just because of the hardware and software. Obviously, there's always the, the artist, the illustrator, the programmers, the, uh, the real magic behind making things happen. But these tools are allowing them to go places they haven't before. And I personally don't have an RTX video card in my computer, so I'm just sitting here on pins and needles wanting to test it out and try out and see what can be done. Well, you know, uh, that's that's thanks for that info because uh you know that's always it all co always comes down to hardware for your performance mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to computers or, or very efficient code uh what what do you see with uh what's your feeling about natural language processing to help you uh in your designs instead of you know pointing and clicking and dragging all the time you could actually you know use natural language and and uh then use the mouse or, or gestures to uh, move things spatially. What, so that's, what's your feeling on that? That's a really good question because we ran into this issue, not specific to natural language, but we ran into the, I'll call it the user interface problem in VR on a particular project. It was one of our early projects, and we hadn't really explored a lot of different ways to create some sort of like interface for people to interact with the scene, whether that was as simple as like moving from area to area um, or understanding what part of the overall like um, building site or campus that they were at. And so we tried uh, a couple of different things and we found early on just with testing within our own department, and our own people who are somewhat familiar with this technology, we found that what we thought was going to be the best way to do it was still too complex. It still required too many steps for them to do what they expected to do. It would click a button on one controller to turn on a laser pointer and then point at something and then click another button in order to like uh, teleport or zap to the upper floor of a building, for example. And those were too many steps uh, for some people. And, and I had everything to do with their exposure to this kind of a, an environment and their expectations. So somebody who's played a lot of video games, that was probably super simple. Somebody who hadn't played a lot of video games or their brain didn't make the correlation between video game environments and what they were seeing here, it was too much for them. So we found, what if we leave the laser pointer on all the time? It 
wasn't distracting. We were concerned that the laser pointer being on all the time would be distracting. So we originally made it so you had to turn it on and off. What we found is it became an additional new tool for somebody to, oh, I'm going to talk to somebody about their door over here. And, I'll, oh, look, I have a laser pointer. And then when they wanted to click on a button that was in the scene, they could do that. Well, if I could have had people not have to point at a button floating in the air to go to the upper floor and just said, take me to the upper floor. Yeah. There's very little that's more natural to that. Like they might need to know that there are only six areas that they can teleport to. So I might still need like something on screen that says patio, balcony, lobby, you know, those kinds of things. But if all they had to do is just say, take me to that. I want to see, uh, I want to change the lobby wall from marble to wood slats. Like they might have to know that those are options, right? Like they can't tell it to do something it's not ready to do, but it's way more natural for them to say it than to try to like, okay, now I got to teleport over close to this menu so that I can then click on the right button to change the wall. Or I have to point my pointer, my laser pointer at the wall and push another button. So I get a new menu that tells me the five different wall options that there are like, that's the way people are solving that problem now. And for some people, some experience, some like users, it's too many steps and they either get frustrated, uh, um, which ruins the entire experience. I did some research when I was in grad school and found that as the level of complexity goes up, the level of, um, of what they call arousal goes up. And when there's too much um, physiological reaction to an experience or a decision to be made, uh, um, performance goes down. So there's this, but the same thing happens if it's too easy and it's too simple. So there's just like, there's just like balance in the middle between something that is not too easy and not too hard to where humans find the greatest uh, experiential value. And of course, that's different for everybody. So it was like, subjective information being presented in an objective way well since we sit here and have conversations with each other all day long about the experience shared experiences it's easy for me to talk to some an architect about the details of a door frame um, in one way and if i were going to have that conversation with someone else i would have that conversation in a different way because they have different experiences that relate to a door frame. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, if you had the machine, you know, talking, interacting, and conversing with the user, uh, and he was talking architectural terms, the user would either want him to explain it in more simple terms. And I guess that at that point, if the natural language processor couldn't uh, reduce it down into something that was understandable, he would probably be talking in architectural terms and, uh, you know, they would have to be doing wiki lookups to figure out what was being said, yeah. you know. But you know what? You bring that up and it brings up an interesting reality that I don't think has, I don't think it's ever going to change. And that is what, as far as it relates to architecture, I can't speak outside of that from my own experience. But I think an architect will always be, quote unquote, there when the owner, the stakeholders, the, uh, the tenants, like anybody who's ever going to experience that building um, during the design phase, when it's being presented to any of these various types of people, 
somebody, some representative of the architect is always going to be there. Mm. Um, so whether that's virtually and they're just like, like they're both in this shared virtual experience and like they want to do something. And so then the architect becomes a narrator in a way, uh, allow, kind of helps them know what can and can't be done when it comes to this natural language processing you're talking about. I could see that very naturally. Yeah, you know, the move towards automation is uh, real interesting. We had this discussion about uh, uh, natural language processing therapists, you know, and uh, they just handle mass of production. Uh, and obviously, when things got assessed to be more serious, then it would go to a real therapist. But mm -hmm. uh, if it if it did produce and offload some work, and, you know, just like an assistant, mm -hmm. uh, and eventually becoming the expert, I imagine the machine could be maybe even better uh, in some ways because it has more data, then oh. you, you just get a better experience. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I don't know uh, how many in the audience or you remember that old Atari game. I think it was called Snake. And then basically it would plop up these little squares on the screen and you would be like this this snake that would just go around and you try to eat those. So you go intersect that that dot. And if you did, you got longer. Your snake got longer. And so your your trail got longer and longer and longer as you tried to not run into yourself. Because if you did, then the, like, the, the game ended and you lost and you had to start again. Well, I just watched yesterday a, um, a artificial intelligence playing that game. And I have never seen that game played by a human being that way before. Now, I don't doubt there's like some master humans out there who are quote unquote experts that you've mentioned who could do as well or not better than that particular AI. But that AI that was programmed, trained to play that game had way more information than I ever did and developed strategies. And those strategies failed and it learned from the fails and it tried again to the point where it was just phenomenal. And so I, I think there's always going to be some things that machines can really assist us with, um, but not without us in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, Shane, our time's up. Uh, it was a fast 35 minutes, I'm sure, for you. <laughs> it was way faster uh, than I thought. <laughs> yeah, but you've, you've shared a, a, you know, a lot of your career experience and some very interesting insights. Uh, do you want to just... Uh, just take a few minutes to just summarize or not necessarily summarize, but just tell people how to get a hold of you. And, you know, some of your, like, uh, you know, do you have a wet, I know you have your website, just give me your website and just how to get a hold of you. Yeah. So my, my website where I kind of display some of my recent renderings and then some of my um, VR experiences that I'm allowed to post is at assumption 3d.com. That's uh, S U M S I O N 3d. Dot com the, the numeral three um, I can be uh, reached from from that website you, there's a uh, contact information my, my email address there and my phone number as well if anyone would like to reach out to me um, I'm I love collaborating on uh, 